Good morning. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Genesis chapter 21, verses 8 through 21. The child grew in his womb, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham hung a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar. She set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bow shot away where she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. God, hearing the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying. And he lies there, as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. So she went and filled her skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert, of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Good morning again. Hobbies. Does anybody have a hobby? What's your hobby? Singing, okay. I saw some other hands. What's your hobby? You, Bernice, yeah. Sewing, knitting, crocheting, and reading. Do you have time for anything else? Roy, uh, Ray. History. History. Dancing. Um, what is yours? Gardening. That's a good one. Any others? What's your... your can't tell us. <laughs> what is it? Okay. All right. Uh, I didn't hear cooking or baking, which I think a lot of us have as hobbies in this. What's yours? Eating. Uh, baking. Well, eating's a good hobby, too. <laughs> what do you think God's hobby is? 
think God has a hobby? <laughs> we are a project, that's for sure. <laughs> and building things is a hobby a lot of people have, or creating things. Well, I think that God's hobby This way is bird watching. Why do you think I think God's hobby is bird watching? No idea. Birds are well. There's birds are incredible. They really are incredible. He sees even the sparrow. That's right. Even the sparrow. There are so many birds. I have these books, the Audubon book. They have all these amazing, of course I can't turn to one of them, pictures of birds. And if you look at birds, they're really very unique. Some of them have beautiful colors, some of them have strange shapes. Um, well, I think there are some that are flying. Well, you know, let's see if I can find one that's flying. How about that one? Okay. Um, birds are pretty amazing. And there's so many rare birds and beautiful birds. But there's one bird that there's so many of that sometimes we forget about. The sparrow, right? It's a common bird. It's not much. And it doesn't have a very big picture in this book. It's just a little common brown bird. But the Bible tells us that God even cares about the sparrow, a very uncommon, unusual, uh, not unusual, just kind of sloth kind of bird. So I thought maybe Ben could help me if I could figure out how to make these work. I think they go this way, but I can't see anything. No, I'm not very good at bird watching. Maybe that. I don't know. Do you think you can make these work and see if you can see any birds around here? Take a look and see if you see any birds. Do you see any birds? <laughs> I can't make them work either. I don't know what's wrong with them. Do you see any birds, though? No? What do you see, though? Do you see anything else out here? I see a bear. You see a bear? Oh, no. Where do you see a bear? I don't see any bears. I'm a bear? Oh. I think, what do you see out here? What are those? Are those birds or are those people? They're people. That's right. Do you think that maybe if God's so interested in watching the birds that he doesn't watch people or that he does watch people? He does watch people because even though he watches the little sparrow, do you think we're more important than the sparrow? Yes, we are. We are way more important than those little sparrows because we are his best creation. Yeah. And uh, he, the Bible tells us that a sparrow is sold two for a penny. But we're worth so much more than that. 
And you know what? If God made that many common birds like the sparrow, he must really like common things because there are an awful lot of very common people here. We're all pretty common, aren't we? Yeah. And that's pretty good that our God loves us, even if we're not special or fancy. We're not rich or we're not beautiful. We're just ordinary people. And God loves us. Right? All right. So you think maybe we're God's hobby? We're still with his project that he's working on? But he loves us and he watches us and takes care of us, right? Okay, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you love us that you have created us to be who we are. Whether we're common or unusual, it doesn't matter. You love us no matter what. And you love us even more than the sparrows and all the other things that you've created because we're created in your image. So we thank you for that. And we thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay? Going downstairs? a warm one. We'll try to keep it short. All right. It can be said that there are two types of people in the world. People who think there are two types of people and people who don't. It seems that we often divide the people of the world into two groups. Whether it's good versus evil, right versus wrong, Smart versus ignorant. But Jesus didn't teach two types of people, just one, children of God. As I was packing boxes recently because I had to move to a different classroom, I came upon my copy of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. As I flipped through it, I was reminded of a quote spoken by Scout on page 259. Scout is the daughter of the, the lawyer. She says, I think there's just one kind of folks. Folks. I think God would agree. So, do you divide people into two groups? Or do you just see, like Scout and Jesus and God, folks? It's pretty obvious in the gospel how Jesus saw other people. When I was in seminary at Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, also known as Palmer Seminary, I had many opportunities to meet and learn from a sociology professor by the name of Tony Campolo. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a well-known pastor and speaker, as well as a retired professor of sociology. Apparently, one day, in order to get a discussion going in a sociology class at the University of Pennsylvania, Tony asked his students what some of the world's greatest religious leaders might have said to a prostitute. The discussion was lively and very intense. Tony was setting the class up, and when he felt the time was right, he asked what seemed to be a crucial question. What do you suppose Jesus would have said to a prostitute? He was all primed to point to the class the compassion and understanding which Jesus had for the colorful women of the night. He was all set to do his best to make Jesus look greater 
than all the other religious leaders put together. Once again, she asked, what do you think Jesus would have said to a prostitute? Uh, one of the students answered, Jesus never met a prostitute. She jumped at the opening. He would show this guy. He would show him a thing or two about Jesus. Uh, so he started opening his New Testament. He said, yes, he did. And he responded, I'll show you here. Where in my Bible it says? And the young man interrupted him and said, you didn't hear me, doctor. I said, Jesus never met a prostitute. Once again, Campolo protested, and once again, he reached for his New Testament. He started to leaf through the pages, searching for the passages to show where Jesus was forgiving fallen women. He searched for the places where he gave the woman at the well a chance for spiritual renewal. And once again, the student, who happened to be Jewish, spoke out, this time with a touch of anger in his raised voice. You're not listening to what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jesus never met a prostitute. Do you think that when he looked at Mary Magdalene, he saw a prostitute? Do you think he saw whores when he looked at women like her? Doctor, listen to me. Jesus never met a prostitute. Campolo felt, felt silenced. He was being corrected by a Jewish student who, in some ways, may have had a better understanding of Jesus and some of us who go by the title Christian. I love this story because it reminds me that one of the most notable characteristics of Jesus was the fact that he paid no special attention to the outcasts of his society. Most people feared the lepers and insisted they stay far away from them and announced their presence by shouting, unclean, unclean. But Jesus welcomed them and even touched them. While most people hated tax collectors, Jesus invited Matthew to be one of his 12. And he even stopped a parade under Zacchaeus' tree so that he could have dinner at his house. While everyone looked down on prostitutes, Jesus welcomed them and cared for them. When the woman taken in the act of adultery was brought before him, he pointed to the others and said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Everywhere we turn in the New Testament, we find Jesus looking for the outcasts of society and welcoming them into his presence. And Jesus was always easier on those who have fallen into sin than he was on those filled with pride and eager to condemn those with sins more visible than theirs. Until I looked closely at today's text, I would have assumed that the New Testament revealed something new about God in these actions of Jesus. But as I looked at our story for today, I realized that God always showed himself as the God of the outcasts. Our impression of the Old Testament is often that God was busy searching and selecting people, the people of Israel, as his chosen and special ones, and rejecting everybody else. We almost get a picture of a fraternity God who blackballed certain people and tribes just because they're not the chosen ones. Cain's offering was not accepted, but Abel's is. Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt because she looked back at Sodom. 
Noah and his family were exclusively selected to survive the great flood. Israel was chosen, but not the other tribes of the world. Isaac was chosen, but not Ishmael. But today's scripture shows a picture more consistent with the actions of Jesus in the New Testament. While God may have a chosen people and his preferred plan, God is also the God of the outcast. In our story today, we focus on Hagar, who is an Egyptian slave girl who is unwittingly brought into the drama of the story. She's chosen kind of like a brood mare and given to Abraham so that she can provide barren Sarah with a child by proxy. Today, with modern technology, people attempt the same kinds of things by using artificial insemination and surrogate mothers. Many of today's stories turn out just as complicated as this one does. It's an ugly scene. Neither Sarah nor Abraham come off as the noble characters we like to make them out to be. Instead, they seem a lot like us, impatient with God. At Sarah's suggestion, they decide to take the inheritance matter of their own, into their own hands. God had promised descendants, but none were forthcoming. So Sarah sends Hagar, her handmaid, to lie with Abraham and produce an offspring. Like most of our mistakes, it must have seemed like a good idea at the time, but the consequences erupted out of control. We have to speculate a bit to understand the true complications of the relationships. Abraham might have enjoyed Hagar's presence, just a little too much. Sarah became outraged, a jealous wife. Hagar may have let her fertility go to her head and start making comments about Sarah's infertility. Every time Abraham dotes on his only son, Ishmael, Sarah fumes with jealousy. Finally, in their old age, God grants a child to Sarah, the one she names Isaac, which means laughter. Instead of easing the complications and of the relationship, they get worse. One day, the whole sordid matter comes to a fiery head when Sarah observes Ishmael playing with the much younger Isaac. I like to think it is just innocent playfulness, but some scholars look more carefully at the Hebrew language, and Sarah's extreme reaction uh, may have been more warranted than we might think. But whatever happened, Sarah saw Ishmael at Isaac's, as Isaac's competitor for the promise of God, and suddenly she insisted that Abraham send Hagar and Ishmael out into the desert. Sarah's disdain for the fertile slave girl is shown in the fact that she doesn't refer to either Ishmael or Hagar by name. She says, banish the son of that slave girl. Sarah refers to both Ishmael and Hagar only by their status. Abraham, however, was understandably hesitant. Like any parent, he loved both of his sons, and he probably cared deeply for Hagar as well. But Abraham finally relents when he gets a special word from God that Hagar and Ishmael will be taken care of. Hagar and Ishmael are sent out to wander in the wilderness of Beersheba until their meager provisions are exhausted. Racked with thirst, Hagar casts her son under a bush and sits down a bow shot away so she will not see him die. 
And here, God shows that he is not only with Isaac and Israel's children. God demonstrates his divine care and mercy for those who are outside of the special covenant relationship in two ways. First, the angel of God informed Hagar that God has heard their cry, that she should arise and take the child's hand, for I will make him a great nation. And second, uh, Hagar's eyes are opened so that she sees a well of water nearby from which she and her son may drink. Ishmael grew up under divine protection, became an expert bowman, married an Egyptian woman, and had 12 children, and became the father of a great nation himself, just as God promised. Ultimately, all of those who follow Islam would trace their heritage back to Abraham through Ishmael. Once again, there are a lot of lessons to learn, but I can't help but notice that these early stories in the Bible demonstrate that the people of our recent past were not the first to suffer through dysfunctional families. We love to say that the world has changed too much, that we yearn for those good old days in the past, way back in the 50s, when things weren't, were so much better, and it was easy to paint the rosy picture of times gone by. But the truth is, people have struggled with many of the same problems since the beginning of humankind. This is a heart-wrenching story because it's our story. When we read it, we find ourselves holding onto our chairs, trying not to run away. We realize it's not just about our ancestors. It's about mixed families that so many of us experience now. First husband, second wife, surrogate parenthood, children, conflict. This story rings with a contemporary flavor with blended families who talk about your kids, my kids, and our kids. Poor Hagar may have been the first to have to make a special name for the man who she should have simply been able to call her husband. Like so many today, she makes reference to the father of my children. Here we find what has perhaps become the first single mother thrown out to survive on her own. It's a story of a boy who becomes alienated from his father. Yes, it's a painful modern story. Bill Moyers made the following observation from this passage in a book based on the TV show, which he gathered a variety of scholars to discuss the book of Genesis. He says, sometimes the details of the stories we are discussing from Genesis sound like pulp fiction. In this one, we come to the first triangle. Two women share the bed of the same man. The squabbling gets mean. Everyone gets hurt. The stuff of a cheap novel and of a fast read. But peel back the layers, and the Bible is Tolstoy, Shakespeare, and Faulkner. The themes in this story are deep and painful. A woman's infertility, surrogate motherhood, class differences, and the price human beings pay for God's will to be done. And something else. The triangle does, not, does set off fireworks, and by the dawn's early light, Judaism and Islam go their separate ways. Because it's our story, there is probably something, someone here, 
saying that I don't feel chosen. I feel rejected, lost, bereft. I identify with this poor, forsaken woman and her tears and her dying child. That's why this text suddenly takes this detour, leaving the history of the chosen ones to follow the lost and the outcast. God, who chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is also the God of all the tribes and people of the earth. The God who saw the burdens and heard the cries of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, the God who came down to save them with a mighty hand, is the same God who sees the outcast child under the bush in the desert, hears his mother weeping, and tenderly brings them to water and promises that they too are highly regarded by God. The message is not just about nations and tribes. It's about people, about individuals, about us. When all have forsaken and forgotten us, when life has passed us by and all around us is desert and our dreams are over there dying under a bush, that's when we need to remember this old story. We need to know that God sees the tears of an outcast woman and an abandoned child. We need to know that God hears us even when we feel God forsaken. Fred Craddock tells of a time he and his wife slipped away to the mountains for a day of relaxation. As they sat in a little restaurant, they saw a man going from table to table greeting the diners. Eventually, he made his way to the Craddock's table, and learning that Fred was a minister, he insisted on telling them this story. The man said he was born just a few miles from the spot across the mountain. His mother had not been married when he was born, and the criticism directed at her also hit him. The schoolmates learned from their parents how to ridicule, and the boy learned to say to himself at lunch and recess, lest their insults strike too hard. Even more difficult were the trips to town with his mother when he could feel the looks and the shaking heads and he heard the question, I wonder who his father is. When he was about 12, a new pastor came to the little community church, and people talked about his skill as a preacher, and the boy began to go and hear for himself. He was fascinated by the preacher, but he was always careful to slip in late, sit in the back, and leave early, lest someone catch him and ask, what's a boy like you doing here? One Sunday, though, he was so caught up in the service that he almost forgot to slip out. And before it was over, it was too late. Suddenly, he felt a big hand on his shoulder, and as he turned around, he saw the face of that preacher. The preacher said, Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? His heart sank at the question. But when the preacher went on, Wait a minute. I know who you are. The family resemblance is unmistakable. You are a child of God. And with that, he patted the boy on his back and added, Boy, that's quite an inheritance. Go and claim it. As the boy, now a man standing in that restaurant, the old man said to Fred and his wife, That one statement literally changed my whole life. He explained that his name was Ben Hooper, and he had twice been elected governor of the state of Tennessee. He had been a successful and, respect, had a successful and respected life, 
made possible by a small town minister who cared enough to encourage a little boy. When you feel like you are an outcast, unloved and uncared for, remember that you are God's child no matter what. You are loved by God, not with a value-recognizing love, but with a value-giving love. You are freed to live, to grow, to try, to reach, to love. That's quite an inheritance. Go and claim it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you claim us, even if we're broken, even if we feel unloved or uncared for. Help us to know that we truly are yours and that you have great things in mind for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you join me in singing our closing hymn?